This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions community show, and I'd like to tell you about my trip recently to Tasmania. You would have heard the interviews I did with the Antarctic scientists And I also attended the launch of Christine Milne's book, An Activist Life, which we'll play after the interview. After I went to the launch in Hobart, I went on a three-day wilderness tour, and it was marvellous. I went on a river trip up the Gordon River, and people took you on boardwalks, took us on boardwalks, just small groups, up to see these massive trees, hewn pines. I hadn't heard about the hewn pines, but they're massive and some of them, one of them, lady showed us, was 2,500 years old. And there's another one near Roseberry that they reckon is something like 10,000 years old. This forest is just magnificent. It's intact. It's pristine. Just apart from these boardwalks and little jetties, there's nothing else there, and it's dense. The biodiversity there must be just fabulous. And people really struggled for this. You all have heard about Lake Pedder, which was a battle that was in, was lost really, uh, but after that the activists from the mainland came down, Bob Brown, Christine Mill were big parts of it, and the point that the guides made to us looking up this dense wilderness was that this could have been flooded if it hadn't been for that generation of people who absolutely went to prison for it, who got publicity on the mainland. You might have seen those photos of... Uh, Peter Dombrovskis and Olegis Trukanis, those calendars. I had a wilderness calendar at the time. That could have been flooded. And now that we know a lot more about carbon, you think of what a carbon store that is. And these forests absolutely have to be preserved now for the future. Christine Milne's talk in the launch at uh, Fuller's Bookshop was really a tribute to all the people who their names are not recorded by history, but they and all their petitions and their pamphlets and their... Efforts are part of what really works. And so climate action is no different. It requires that sort of small start, small sitting room groups of people that that get bigger and bigger. And now with social media, perhaps the ripple effect goes out further. But really, it's the solidarity that people feel, the friendship they feel. And there were lots of people in that audience at Hobart uh, for her book that were her old friends back from the original campaigns and So I hope you enjoy my interview with Christine Milne and that's followed then by James Boyce talking to Christine at 
Fuller's Bookshop. Christine Milne is a former leader of the Australian Greens Party and she's the first woman uh, leader of a party in Tasmania. She is famously a private person, but she's written a book called An Activist Life and she's here to talk with us from Hobart. Welcome, Christine. Thanks very much, Vivian. You've been a great friend to this program and to community radio because I think you genuinely understand the trust that we build up in our program, for example, with the climate community. So let's go back to when you were a girl on a dairy farm. I'd like to know what that community was like. Well, Wesleyvale is a tiny community just outside Devonport in northwest Tasmania. And uh, we had a small family dairy farm um, and my father and his brother farmed there and my mother taught at the local uh, area school it was in those days, the Wesleyvale Area School. We could never go on holidays because as a dairy farmer you basically tied to the land all the time and in the winter when the cows dried out dad would go hunting on those weekends and so we didn't get to go as kids. So my life was really defined by Bass Strait to the north, uh, Cradle Mountain, Mount Roland uh, looking south over to the Dial Range one way and then out to uh, what's now the Naranjapu National Park the other. And so that really was the cradle of my life and the rhythm of life on the land was what I came to know. So uh, it was a very small community. We knew everyone. It was in the days when we eventually got a car and people would go out, they'd lift their finger from the steering wheel to acknowledge everybody up at the local shop was where people got their mail and everyone stood around and talked about what was happening in the district. Uh, I think the other thing that was quite remarkable was, of course, we lived off the land. We grew all our own food, we killed our own meat and poultry, grew our own eggs, uh, we'd go fishing down at Bass Strait. And so that was very much a... It was a simple lifestyle, but we were well looked after and uh, it was very much the rhythm of country life. Well, when you went to university, you studied history, and I loved learning about that because that's my favourite subject. And I often, I like knowing things. For example, someone said something about Clapham in London, and I remembered the Clapham sect and William Wilberforce and how a small group of people eventually entered the slave trade in England. I often go back to that and think, oh, well, you know, the slave trade was absolutely important for their economy. Nobody could imagine living without the slave trade, and yet they managed to get rid of it. And we have coal, and we can't imagine living without it, like our top economists sort of seem to not be able to see their way through. But we will. These small group of climate activists will get through. And I wonder, when you, all the things that you've been involved with, how has studying history sort of sustained you? Well, it's interesting that you say that because that's my experience as well. When you have a look through history, you find that it is a small group, as Margaret Mead said, a small group of committed people are the people who change the world. And the other thing that's clear is that change comes from the periphery, not the centre. And that's really interesting in a Tasmanian context because Tasmania is geographically on the periphery of the world and green politics is or has been on the periphery of the political life in most democracies. And so it has been the United Tasmania Group was the world's first green party and now we have green parties 
in represented in 90 countries around the world, which is just extraordinary. And when I stood on the platform at the Global Greens earlier this year in Liverpool and addressed the Global Greens as their first Global Greens ambassador, I thought, you know, isn't this incredible? From the farm at Wesley Vale to this platform in Liverpool and all coming out of Tasmania. And uh, it's interesting with the Russian Revolution, it's the same. Those people changed the world and yet, you know, it was from the geographical periphery as well as the political periphery. Yes, a lot of of great writers seem to come from small country towns, very remote places, and they just have, I suppose, the time to, the gestation of ideas. They're not, I think, maybe city life or being in the centre of life like New York or something, you, you would perhaps be, it's too derivative. Everything is uh, crowding your mind and maybe there's more time well, to think. that's exactly right. And what happens is people, you know, tend to reach consensus positions in those large cities and it's really the change is driven by people who do have very alternative thinking and often, of course, that's not in the, in the mainstream centre of the economic or social or political order. The other thing I've learned from history, and I quote this all the time, and I, and I do say in in my book that I, you know, all activists should learn it off by heart, and that is essentially a quote from Machiavelli's The Prince, because way back then, um, the 15th century, he said that the vested interests of the old order will fight like partisans to save what they have, whilst the lukewarm supporters of the new ideas will stay lukewarm because, and he uses men of course, men don't embrace things until they have experience of them. And that is essentially the experience of activists, it's the experience in the renewable energy sector where you've got the coal industry and the gas industry fighting like partisans to hold on to their vested interests. And those who support the new order, the renewables, the getting out of fossil fuels, tend not to be anywhere near as hardline in their fight for the future. And so that just plays out time and time again. Well, you were jailed as an activist later over the Franklin Dam campaign. And I think that must have been a very dramatic event in your life. But do you think it's harder now for climate campaigners? Uh, absolutely. And uh, I just go back to the Franklin. I was arrested for trespass on the, uh, up on the Franklin River and chose not to sign the bail document and went to Risdon Women's Prison. And that was a really important event in my life because it was the first time I'd come face-to-face with intergenerational injustice in the sense that... The other women I met in prison, and these are not the Franklin River campaigners, these were people who were in prison for various crimes they'd been convicted uh, for, they, I hadn't ever really realised the extent to which they had often been abused as children and then became uh, entrenched in welfare systems and disadvantage and poor education and abuse and you just think it, it changed me I became, came out of prison far less judgmental and much more aware of the complexity of disadvantage in society than I think I ever ha- would have been without that experience so I always say that I learned an awful lot from the women in prison But uh, in terms of of activists now, it's an important message because young people often say to me, oh, you know, 
you were also great on Franklin and you got arrested and went to jail and, it's, you know, we, we feel bad that we're not doing as much. And the difference now, of course, is governments have made it a crime as opposed to a misdemeanour for people to be arrested these days, locking on and being in forest protests and the like. And that gives them a criminal record and that seriously affects their job prospects, where they can go in the world. Uh, it really changes the trajectory of their life in a really draconian way. And so I say to them, you know, actually the generation who now should be standing up and getting arrested is my generation, the grandparents, because we've had our lives, we've had our opportunities to travel and our careers we should be actually standing up to governments and these draconian uh, provisions in the law and I was really pleased that Bob Brown's case against uh, Tasmania's protest laws uh, won in the High Court just recently but New South Wales has brought in really strict penalties against people campaigning against coal seam gas and this is a fundamental issue of democracy but I just want young people to know that I don't expect it of them, I do expect it of my peers to get out and support their kids and grandchildren. Yeah. One of the um, chapters in your book is focuses on a knitting nana's cap, and we've covered the story of coal seam gas quite often, especially when the group at Gloucester in New South Wales fended off AGL. It was a success story. I was very happy to report the end of that story because the gas exploration people had to go away and leave that pristine valley, the farmland, and the water catchment, which was the main thing they were worried about alone. Do you think, I want to know, now coal seam gas seems to be hanging around as a, as a possibility and I've been recently to a conference, the listeners will remember I was quite traumatised going to that conference to see just how, as you said, those people with vested interests are very partisan, they are fighting now with coal seam gas to export it and to just drill for it everywhere. And do you think the landowners need to be stronger on the climate impact of gas and its methane emissions? Look, I think the, the communities campaigning against coal seam gas are doing a fantastic job and they need to be supported. I think the Lock the Gate movement, the Knitting Nanners, um, the communities standing up against coal seam gas are doing a, a, the whole country a great service and the world a great service because we can cannot afford to have any more methane going to atmosphere, let alone water pollution, let alone biodiversity loss. And what's more, we need high-quality farmland to grow food because food security is a big issue in the age of global warming and we're going to see pressure on farmland as we've never seen before and we certainly don't need coal seam gas. And I think the, the fundamental issue here is we don't need gas. It's over for gas. And I keep saying that to people and the vested interest of the old order, Origin, people like Grant King who when he was in Origin um, massively shifted that company into gas, they are now all striving to try and stop gas becoming a stranded asset which indeed all those investments in gas are. Years ago, maybe a decade, 15 years ago, gas was a transition fuel from coal. But gas threw in its lot with coal and they stayed in the business long enough for the renewable energy sector to leapfrog gas. We have now got renewables. They are so cheap. They've come down the, the, the cost curve. It is one of the fantastic success stories of the century. And what we are now seeing is all those companies trying to get governments to basically lock in a rescue package for their, for their failed investments and I won't have a bar of it and I'm absolutely appalled by the AEMC, the 
Electricity Market Commission and their backing of gas. Everything they do is about propping up gas and it's an absolute disgrace. Well, let's get back more to the personal side, like how all of this has affected you. You've been in public life many years now, so a lot of people listening would like to know what it's like in Parliament. And Peter Cundall said something interesting about you. He said you're a relentless fighter against political corruption, but everyone knows that power corrupts and you've had power. How did you maintain your integrity? How did you just maintain yourself within then? And I would imagine the shock of finding out exactly what does go on, because you know more than we do. Yes, well, it's... um, Well, Peter... Peter paid me one of the greatest compliments I think I could ever be paid in that in that he said that that I couldn't be bought and I was just I just found that so you know so wonderful that that he could see that and that that was important to the community and it was always very important to me and this comes back to you know my decision to run in the first place was on the issue of stopping the Wesley Vale pulp mill and I ran as an independent uh, on a team of independents put together by Bob Brown. Now, if I had been interested in a political career and advancement in politics, then running as an independent or later as a Green was not going to be the way to get myself into the ministry or get myself into a Premier's position or a Leader of the Opposition position or whatever. And I think that's the point at which you decide, are you going into politics to try and change things, in which case uh, you are never going to be one of the, uh, one of, or not in, in the short term anyway. I do think the Greens will eventually get into government, but it's going to take a while. But if you choose to run on a serious platform of change, then you are not going to be part of the boys and girls club as it is now of mainstream politics who are more interested in personal advancement than they are of the change that needs to be made that's the first thing the second thing is when you get there as a woman in politics you can either decide to be assimilated into the way that things are or you can opt to stay out of it and it's a a conscious decision so you'll find that when you hear uh, both Labor and Liberal politicians talking about women in politics, those who um, go along with what the party wants and those who smile nicely when they're told and sit behind their, you know, you look at who's put behind the Prime Minister or the Leader of the Opposition in question time, it's always the women. It's to soften the image of the men and to make it look more diverse, etc., But if you're a woman who actually is strong and determined and they think dangerous, then you get labelled as being, you know, a witch, as in the case of Julia Gillard, or just um, hard, uh, uncompromising. And, you know, I couldn't tell you, Vivian, how many hundreds of times over the years people said, oh, Christine, if only you'd smile more. Wouldn't it just smile more? And I just think... Yes, because what is the, the message here is that women are there to be uh, decorative and to smile and to be attractive and to flutter around the boys in the place or are women st- standing there in their own right to have their say? And I think that's the difference and you'll find all women in politics uh, who are making a difference will suffer that kind of criticism. 
we're, we're seeing a sort of a breakdown, it seems to me, in Parliament now, like a f- terrible incapacity to deal with Manus Island, to deal with climate change, definitely, and so many issues. Publics, are, a lot of people are turned right off it. But what did, what, when you were in federal parliament, for example, what struck you? Was it a sort of blooding for you? Did you learn things that you just never believed possible or what? Well, what I did learn was that basically everybody in parliament, regardless of whether you're an independent, a green, liberal, labor or national, is that you do have to think about how you, how to get elected and how to stay elected and how to get re-elected. And because of the way that our political system is structured, that means you do have to get political donations. You do have to get the money to get re-elected. And so you can do as we Greens try, try to do, and that is raise money from community events and we have some donors and so on. Or you can throw in your lot with big business, which in fact both uh, Liberal and Labor do and the Liberal Party to a greater extent because the Labor Party has the unions to help um, their campaigns. So fundamentally what has to change in Australian politics is dark money. We have to get the money out of it. The donations regime has to stop because what I learned after all those years is that we actually don't live in a democracy anymore. We live in a plutocracy. It's government by the wealthy, for the wealthy, and I have said that very clearly in the book. So that that is why any opinion poll will come out on Adani and tell you the overwhelming majority of the community don't want it. The overwhelming majority of the community want to protect the Great Artesian Basin. They do want water to come down the Murray River. They do want to stop the logging, and they want to have the Great the um, National Park, the Great Forest National Park in Victoria. They don't want oil drilling in the bite. You know, you just put all those questions out there and you get an overwhelming support from the community. People are worried sick about losing the Great Barrier Reef. They do not want all of this destruction of farmlands and new coal mines and coal-fired power stations. And yet, in spite of that, Labor and Liberal have a bipartisan view to support all those things. And it, you just think, how is that possible? And when you go behind it and the release of these... Um, Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers before that just show you this web of corruption and so I just feel like we have to expose this dark money, this corrupt web that goes on behind Australian politics and actually massively overwhelming, uh, over uh, reforming the um, electoral system to get rid of the donations, to bring in proportional representation and and have a national ICAC would just be an amazing change. So Mm. I think that's the thing that overwhelmingly struck me is just the deals that go on in the back rooms and the cross deals that go on offering people not necessarily personal inducements, but certainly members of parliament lobby their government, the people on the same side, to deliver programs in their electorates, which is a pork barrel to their electorate to get them re-elected, and that's the sort of stuff that goes on all the time. Okay, well, let's move on to now what I consider your crowning glory in your years in parliament, which was the Climate Act. And uh, Australia is famous for having got this world-class Climate Act, though parliament then 
axed it. And I think we're famous for that too. But I don't think all is lost. I don't think it's been a wasted exercise. John Hewson said on the radio once to me that he couldn't understand why Julia Gillard didn't defend it more and left herself open to Tony Abbott for quite a few months to froth up everybody about axing the tax. And Gillard said, I just researched this a bit this morning, and she said, I made the wrong choice and politically it hurt me terribly. Now, I'm interested in this in this because most people are glazed over completely if you say carbon tax to them now, but many of the scientists I speak to or farmers or thinkers or people who want uh, you know reductions of emissions say we need a price on carbon. They keep saying they, that's the fallback position and yet Christopher Pine told Bill Shorten recently or a, year, a couple of years ago, I think he said, we'll hang the carbon tax round your neck like a rotten, stinking carcass. So I hope the history books record your efforts, the Greens' efforts in that uh, Julia Gillard government. You know, the cooperation you did, and I know it was hours and hours and weeks of work in committees and getting it right. And as I said, a world-class climate act. I hope the history books do record it because it'd be easy to sort of airbrush it out, but it's, to me, very memorable. And I... Yes, I'd like to know yes, why is it still such a hot potato? Uh, well, it certainly is a highlight of my Senate political career because before we gave, we agreed to give confidence and supply to Julia Gillard in 2010, we, the Greens, put to her that we would give her government providing that she uh, agreed to legislate a carbon price and that it would take effect on before the first of Ju- or on the first of July 2012. That was part of the agreement, and that would form a multi-party climate committee, which would work on the details of what that would all mean and how it would pan out. And it was very clearly about a carbon price because prior, then, prior to then there had been a debate amongst people who were, wanted action on climate change. Do you have a tax? in which case you just put a price on carbon, it raises revenue, but you don't have any real control over putting a cap on the absolute amount of carbon going to atmosphere. Or alternatively, do you put a cap on the carbon and set up a trading system so at least you know that you are going to constrain your emissions to a certain level? And, of course, that is what we opted for is the the carbon price. Now, Julia Gillard wasn't really interested when in 2010, if you remember, she had just rolled Kevin Rudd. She had come in and in that election she said that there would be no legislation on a carbon price in that 2010 to 13 period, that anything that happened would be in the next period of government and she said that they would simply have a 100-person community climate consultation at that time. So she wasn't really across it. It was new to her. It wasn't her portfolio previously. And so she didn't really understand the subtleties of the argument or how important it was. The second thing is the Greens were passionate about global warming. We wanted to talk about the science, what was happening, why it was so important for species, for farmland, for the reef and all of that, that we get emissions down. For for Prime Minister Gillard and Greg Combay, they wanted to fight on labour on labour territory, which was the cost of living. So they went over and they constantly talked about power prices and things, which meant they played on exactly the same playing field as Tony Abbott, who, of course, went in for cost of living arguments and hence the Hunt Barnaby's $100 roast and Wyalaby wiped off the face of the earth and so on and so forth. So we could never get the government to argue it on the basis of the climate and, and the future. 
they always wanted to do it on this won't really cost you too much. And Julia Gillard's big mistake, and the one she refers to when she says, um, you know, it cost her a lot politically, was when she went on the 7.30 report and Heather Hewitt put to her, but this is a tax, you do admit it's a tax. And she said, oh, look, I don't care about the language, yes, yes, it's a tax. And at that, and once she did that, she was gone. I was sitting at home watching it, and I talk about this in the book, and I was just devastated because I just knew where that would take us in terms of uh, Abbott's attacks, and it did. However, people also now say, oh, well, we, we lost everything when Abbott repealed the carbon price. Well, we didn't. We certainly lost a lot of momentum on climate policy, and, and we all know we're still fighting for good climate policy, but we managed to keep the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA. We managed to keep the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and we managed to keep the Climate Change Authority. And the, the first two remain doing fantastic work. The Climate Change Authority has been destroyed because they have changed the board into people now who aren't passionate about the climate. But the CEFC and ARENA are doing a fantastic job. And between the carbon price and those two institutions... We managed to be the bridge to the future and so what really excites me now is that renewables have won. You know, renewable energy has absolutely won the energy race of this century and what we're now seeing is governments desperately trying to haul it back and leg rope it back to the past and bring in all these draconian measures to try and stop and undermine renewables but you know what, they can't. It, the horse has bolted and so I'm quite excited about the renewable energy future notwithstanding the idiocy we have going on at the moment with the Turnbull government and the far right and the Liberal Party. Coming back to the idea of an activist life, I think people seeing that as a title, they might be thinking, what book will I buy for Christmas? And then they'll think, oh, an activist life. No, that's not me. Because activists are mostly visible against something like stop Adani, stop calcium gas, stop logging. And I think a lot of people I meet are really sort of on the fence or they just don't like that image. And certainly the media obliges by making activists seem a bit feral. I think people maybe just quietly are putting solar panels on their roof and riding bicycles and not eating so much meat and all of that but they're just hoping that the transition will get ahead you know the energy revolution will happen without or despite government you know around the back door but you you are obviously from an activist you've gone into parliament and now you speak on these international stages so i'd like to know how does your life as an activist uh, seem to you now looking back has it given you something or is it has it been a lot of this sort of being in a hostile environment well, first of all, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to think of themselves as, as activists. Every person who decides to put solar panels on their roof, every person who decides to uh, recycle, to buy less, to change their lifestyle, to be less consumerist, you know, all of those people are activists, people who sign petitions, people who, who go to rallies, people who, you know, in my case, I argue strongly that, you know, I could never have done the things I had done on the Wesley Vale campaign if some of the farmers' wives hadn't cooked meals for me, um, put them in the freezer for my family, people loaned me a car, people loaned me clothes, you know, you don't, people see, see leaders in the environment movement often as heroes and they think, oh, look, I could never do that. But actually, it's a community of people who enable a few people to get on and do the stuff out the front. But without a whole community of people buying into it, 
you wouldn't be successful. So I would say to people, and, and I've, I have said this that in the book, that, you know, I give to the parents of newborn babies um, a Brenda the Civil Disobedience Penguin, which is a, um, it's just from First Dog on the Moon cartoon. And I say to them, look, just get off your, um, I'm disillusioned with politics, I'm a political backside, and recognise that actually what we're bequeathing our children and grandchildren is a really difficult life as climate change bites and we have to really support them and I encourage them to take on a more active role because what it gives you is incredible, you know, satisfaction. I think a lot of people say, well, the question is what makes people happy and I think what is clearly the case is what makes people happy is not having more money but actually feeling like they're living a purposeful life, that their existence means something in the scheme of things because they're doing something for the world or for people or for animals or for biodiversity or for the future. You know, they're actually contributing to building a global community of positive people doing good things. And to me, that is what an activist life is, and I would encourage everybody to embrace it, not sit home feeling lonely and and disassociated from the community. Find a way to join the community in building something good and bigger than yourself. Thank you very much, Christine. I hope listeners will read your book. Could you tell them uh, who's publishing it? And uh, it'll be available on Christmas uh, for Christmas sales. Is it a good book for a Christmas read, like a holiday read? Well, I hope so because I wrote it to um, to set the record straight on some of the the wins that the that we've had over the years on gay law reform, gun law reform. Uh, it's a bit about the Franklin and Lake Pedder, Wesley Vale, the carbon price, on the refugees, and in all cases, I hope it will give people an insight into how you actually. Stay involved and, you know, stay positive and keep going because ultimately you'll win. Queensland University Press has published it and it will be available in bookshops from the 13th of November. Thank you very much. So that was Christine Milne, former leader of the Australian Greens, and her book is called An Activist Life. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate, or... You knew the temperature was rising, rise. you hoped that, that it might stop at two, two. It's more... Boyce is a much-admired historian and author of a book called Van Diemen's Land. He talked to Christine Milne at the launch of her book, An Activist Life, 
in Hobart. James Boyce was especially fond of the way Christine chronicles all the struggles to save the wilderness, to prevent the pulp mills, and her tribute to the unsung activists who were all part of it. The Hobart audience was very warm to Christine, and I've never heard her relax and be as funny as she was in this speech. It's good for us, with all the battles ahead of us in climate change, to witness the power of solidarity. As our Bangladeshi climate scientist, Dr. Hock, said to us, uh, I think there's, there's much that can be achieved, and we haven't, we've only scratched the surface of our capacity to interact and work together across borders as people, not just as governments. Right now, we've left it to governments to do this, and they haven't done a very good job, but we as people can do a lot more. Now, let's get down to Fuller's Bookshop in Hobart to hear about an activist life. Can you share that critical yes? Because I know you don't want to, but that phone call... Uh, um, from Jeff Law. For, from Jeff Law. When you rang Jeff Law, because to me, yeah. even though they are community campaigns and they're won by everybody, an individual saying yes to what was being demanded of them at that time, it can, yeah. it can often be the catalyst that gets it going, and that seemed to have been it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely true. So, uh, as I said, I have been a supporter of the Wilderness Society and the ACF for a long time and I turned up to the rallies and the protests and so on. And so this pulp mill was proposed for Wesley Vale. So it was natural. The first thing I'd do would get on, be get on the phone to one of those organisations saying, well, what are you going to do about it? So I rang up Jeff Law, who was at that time working for ACF. And I said, now, Jeff, they're going to build this terrible pole mill and it's going to use native forests and it's going to pollute Bass Strait and it's going to do all this. Uh, what is ACF going to do about it? And he said, well, ACF's up to its neck in the Helsham Inquiry. We are full-on involved in having to write submissions and do all the work. So if you want something done about Wesley Bay, you're going to have to do it yourself. <laughs> And that was not what I was expecting. I was expecting the usual, well, oh, that's a matter of concern and we'll talk to the others about it and we'll see what we can come back with and so on. In fact, it was the best answer he could have given me and that's what I say to NGOs all the time. Don't promise you can do things when you simply haven't got the capacity to do it. Challenge the person to say, we can't do it, we can, we can help you, we can advise you, but we can't do it, you do it. And so that's what Jeff said, and so I thought, oh, well, if they won't do it, we have to. And I have to say I'm thrilled to bits tonight to have Snow Thomas here. Snow um, and Shirley Thomas are uh, long-time residents, of multi-generational residents of uh, Wesley Vale, and Snow was with me at the very first meeting we had uh, at, at the home of uh, Mike Carr in Wesley Vale where we talked about having a community meeting and then we went ahead and had the community meeting, elected uh, a group of people from the district and we started campaigning then as the concerned residents opposing the Pulpmill siding. So that was the very early days. In terms of community, by that I mean, you know, we were on a single income at the time. I was home with uh, two small children. So... We had an unreliable car. I had no suitable media clothes. You know, they're all, you know, all of those things are reality for community campaigners. And so I had to rely on friends of mine to loan me clothes. One of them is here tonight. And uh, she loaned me clothes to go on TV if another friend loaned me a car. 
Um, some of the farmers' wives would cook and put extra food in the freezer and give it to me uh, for meals and I had exactly the same support in the Senate when I first got elected uh, from um, Patsy Jones and Trish Moran here both cooked for me in those early years in the Senate as well. So it is that, uh, that thing that it's not about heroes, there are only heroic acts and it takes everybody to do what they can and by involving everyone like that, you get ownership. The whole community owns the campaign because they've all invested in it in with whatever capacity they have to invest in it. So never turn it into the hero and we have to raise money to just support support the, the leader, if you like. You need to broaden it to involve. And that's, that's essentially what community campaigning for Wesley Vale for, I would argue, uh, the guns pulp mill, for any number of campaigns around Tasmania, you could write the same script. Yeah. And the Wesley Vale, I mean, it was really the first farmers' protest in Australia in that way, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, you know, so it's really the forerunner of Lock the Gate and, you know, yeah. and the later pulp mill campaigns and all that. So it's, yeah. it's enormous significance historically for the country in that way. Yes, yeah, it, uh, it was basically I'd seen the French farmers take to their tractors and get organised and I thought, well, there's no reason why the Wesley Vale farmers can't do that. So we had our very first time where the farmers took to their tractors and drove into Devonport and we had, again, we had the rally at the Devonport High School and again, the principal wasn't exactly the flavour of the month for allowing that but the main issue for the farmers was not uh, that they didn't want to do it, it was that their, very, their tractors were probably the, one of the biggest investments they had in terms of equipment on the farm and they couldn't afford to leave them parked in the street in Devonport unattended so there was that issue that was their concern about their, the safety of the machinery as much as anything but it was great and Bob came up and spoke at that uh, rally and I have to say a lot of them, a lot of the farmers were a bit discomforted by that, they would have preferred Jerry Bates he would have seemed to be more suited to them, they thought Bob was a bit radical and he was gay and this was a bit of a concern, however when Bob got there and he was speaking to them, there were of course the interjectors from all around the outside and Bob said, don't worry about the potty calves over there it'll be fine, and the minute that he said that they thought, oh this guy knows about the country, he knows about the country. And so they were quite comfortable then with Bob after that. Yeah, yeah, the two movements joined. Uh, it's a wonderful moment. Um, but and then look, we'll have to jump on. And um, uh, I mean, I'd love to spend an hour talking about Wesley Vale, but we jump on to the, uh, to the. You become the only way to cement Wesley Vale and to to take up these other causes is to run for Parliament. So that's what that's what we do. And Bob organised a group of independents, didn't he, around the state? And you got elected as an independent MP. And we, got, we because of limited time, we haven't got a, an awful lot of time to talk about the Tasmanian Parliament in those days. But it really is. Um, I mean, uh, it's 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 not easy reading. It's a it's a misogynist, awful place. Um, it makes the Senate, I think you described this, the Senate later would seem like a cakewalk after the Tasmanian Parliament at this time. Um, and, um, but do you want to, I mean, is there anything you want to share from, from, from those days? And, um, any, any stories of the Tasmanian Parliament at that time or shall we just... 
Oh, it just quickly, um, it, it was an awful misogynist place and Di Hollister and I were called political sluts and get back to the kitchen and all, you know, all sorts. But you just have to look at the photos of the men who were there at the time and you can see this was Robin Gray's era, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty gross. But the Greens, the Greens, um, uh, were the object of suspicion because we employed Ahmet Bektas who had just uh, been working with Apple and Ahmet insisted we all have computers. Now at that time the only equipment you had in the parliament was the phone <coughs> and you had stenographers employed. So the Greens suddenly set up with these things called computers and that was an object of great suspicion. What are they up to and what are they, who, what are they doing? Who are they, you know, what's going on? Anyway, so we had computers. So one very funny story is Di Hollister was a very popular member in Bratton and she did terrific community work everywhere. And Tony Rundle hated it because he was also a Liberal member for Braddon and Di was eroding the, the Liberals' base because she was taking up all the local causes. So uh, one night, um, Tony Rundle, out of sheer frustration, got up and said, oh, look, if the Preservation Bay Darts Club wrote to Di Hollister, she'd be in here raising their issues and whatever. <laughs> and so one of our staff went out the back and created a letterhead for the Preservation Bay Darts Club. <laughs> and, of course, nobody else knew you could even do such things on a computer and things at that time. So it created a, a letterhead for the Preservation Bay Darts Club and, you know, wrote this letter. And so we wrote this letter, Dear Premier... It's come to our attention that you've been extremely rude about our time. Diane Hollister's a marvellous local member and so And it got more and more ridiculous until the end of... We made it more and more ridiculous until the end of the letter is, so if you don't stop saying this, we'll come around and rip your bloody arms off. <laughs> But Jim Bacon and uh, the re-elect. Jim Bacon was about to come into the Parliament. Anyway, we got the parliamentary attendant to take it and deliver it to Rundle. So we're sitting in the Parliament and this letter gets taken across and delivered to Tony Rundle who's sitting in the Premier's seat. He opens it and he starts reading. It starts off, as I said, quite sensibly and he's got the letterhead and he starts reading it and he's quite concerned and then he gets further into it and recognises that it's a joke. So we're all sitting, we Greens are sitting there and we were never expected to be involved in jokes because we're all earnest and we never <laughs> So he didn't suspect us but he looked around and Michael Hodgman was sitting there with a grin on his face <laughs> and so Rundle immediately assumed it was Michael Hodgman and so he got out of his seat and he went round and he started to rip into Hodgman who was going, it wasn't me. <laughs> Um, and we, we just had to walk out because it would have been too much for us. I don't think Rundle even to this day knows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think he's up the back there. <laughs> you know, you emphasise in the book, it's this idea, you're really trying to show that the saving of the Tasmanian environment was all these little campaigns all over the state, wasn't it? it was... Not only to have them remembered, but to <coughs> put some pressure on people to look after the records and put them into collecting institutions. So this has been a real frustration of mine that, uh, as we all know, the winners write history. The winners in Tasmania are always going to be, or in the short term until the Greens do 
Liberal in government, but um, the Liberal and Labor parties, and they deliberately write these community campaigns out of history because they are always on the wrong side. The forest campaigns especially, uh, you know, now that we've got the World Heritage Area with the inclusion of the forests, nobody wants to talk about the people who gave up months, if not years, of their lives to be in those forest camps to make a stand and were called for everything, called dirty ferals, called everything, and yet they are the people with the Tarkine Tigers, and some of those are here tonight, um, who actually gave Tasmania the reputation that we have. Clean, clean and Green came from people who owned Tasmania and wanted to look after it, and they're the ones written out of history. And I'm just frustrated that the history is now owned by federal hotels or by the government. That is wrong. We need to own our own history. So I know that there are so many people about to retire or downsize. They have got photographs. They've got posters. They've got stickers. They've got... Um, memorabilia of various kinds. Only they know who's in the pictures. Only they know the approximate dates. If they know the real date, that's great. What I'd love to see people do is digitise the images, put the names on them, the stickers, the whole lot, and we need to get these into institutions so that we collectively tell our story, and that's why in the book I say we need a Tasmanian app, we need a common platform, and we need people to be able to load up this material so that when tourists go around Tasmania and Tasmanians go around Tasmania and they drive up to a place like the Friendly Beaches and they think, wow, isn't that great? They think, well, the reason it's great is that people actually fought for this place. It would have been a sand mine. Mm. Um, that's really the point that I wanted to make and I'm very keen to see some sort of collaboration between the university, the collecting institutions and so on to actually get this history of community activism. Yeah. I've never found it very easy to talk about myself or to talk about feelings. In fact, I, I recount in the book the 1998 election night, a hideous and awful election night for us. That was when they, they uh, Liberal and Labor had gotten together to reduce the numbers in Parliament. We thought we would all lose our seats, the four of us, but in fact Peg held on, but we didn't know that night that she would hold on. And it was horrible, and I knew I'd have to go down to the casino, to the tally room, and I knew Liberal and Labor would be jubilant and vile about the fact that they'd successfully gotten rid of the Greens and so on. And so I said to my staff, you have to go down there and you have to talk to all the Green supporters who are going to be waiting for me and say, do not make eye contact do not smile, do not hug, do not anything, just let me go straight through because I am going to get up there and make my speech and then after that we can all, I can cry and whatever, but I, if you be nice to me now, I will not be able to go and do what I need to do. So I learned that from an early age, so I find it really hard to talk about feelings. But if someone asks me, why have you got that sculpture over there? It's, it's not particularly... Uh, attractive, what is it about that sculpture, or why are these old butter pats in your kitchen drawer, or tell me about that suit that you're wearing, or um, what about these two little bottles of water, why have you got those, 
Um, and I know Corey Peterson's here, and Corey sent me those those bottles of water. They are Antarctic uh, nascent bottom water from under the Ross Ice Shelf, and he sent them to me in that election in 1988, saying, "What happens in this part of the world packs a furious punch elsewhere in the world, regardless of what happens." And so I kept the, kept them because it was such an important statement of the Greens and of the climate at that particular time. So the reason I chose to write about objects was I'm very happy to tell you why I've kept something, what it means to me, rather than try and tell you what I'm feeling. So that that's, was the reason why I chose objects. And I think it makes it more interesting too because I think political biographies that are just... I did this and then I did that and then I did something else tend to be a bit boring. <laughs> Not in your case, Christine. <laughs> Throughout the Wesley Vale campaign, that's when we got really introduced to the extent to which the corporates own uh, the political parties and they do it by virtue of donations and they do it by virtue of majority government. And that mantra in Tasmania, you know, we have to have a stable majority government, what that means is we have to have the backroom deals that we pay for and make them stick. If you don't have a majority government, you can't actually deliver the deals because on the, the decisions have to be made on the floor of the House. So that was a really important lesson in Wesley Vale and it's a lesson that I've learnt time and time again. You just have to look at ICAC in New South Wales with the coal and CSG licences. We had it with all the forest campaigns here in Tasmania with guns and we still have it. And so throughout all the work I've done on the climate, it became evident to me achieving the carbon price and then watching the Business Council of Australia and, and the Minerals Council, all of those big corporates investing in those bodies to derail the legislation, all for their own corporate profit. Today, another example of it, a billion dollars um, you know, paid out at the, for the compensation that they sent overseas, tax avoidance. <coughs> so I came to the conclusion that we actually can't win on the climate or on social justice, whether that's uh, gay rights, Aboriginal rights or anything, until we take back our democracy because I say we now live in a plutocracy, we no longer live in a democracy and we have to actually collaborate across all our campaigns to, to go a main a democracy focus and take them on when they talk about majority government and say we need uh, actually we need uh, proportional representation and multi-party governments and shared power so that we don't have the backroom deals that destroy democracy. And so that's why throughout my, the whole book I gave, give several examples. Uh, and last Friday I was at a dark money uh, seminar at the uh, Sydney University. And I intend to stay right on this, I think, until we actually upend... The, the extent to which the corporates have bought politics in Australia, we can't make the way that the community wants and Adani is just the latest example of the same thing. Because I thought people might like to, to know as your fellow Tasmanians just what, what plans Christine Milne has, has from here. Can you share a little bit of that? Just because we'd like to be on the journey with you, I mean. Well, uh, first and foremost, I'm a grandmother, so that is a very exciting journey, I have to say, I love it. Um, and so, uh, obviously, uh, my children were two and four when I was first elected to the Tasmanian Parliament, 
And so I was determined that this time around I was going to be a present grandmother and so I'm really enjoying that and about to be a grandmother again, so I'm very excited about that. So that, uh, but also in terms of what I'm going to do, I've been working on a campaign to try and get World Heritage Listing for the Burrup in Western Australia for the Aboriginal petroglyphs which have been destroyed by industrial pollution. So I've been working with the Friends of Australian Rock Art and the Bob Brown Foundation. I intend to get more heavily involved in this issue of dark money and uh, trying to have that as an umbrella theme. For example, I said to them last week, instead of GetUp having to defend itself at accusations that it is an associated entity of Labor and the Greens, we should be saying that the Murdoch Press and the IPA are associated entities of the Liberal Party. back on that, but also I've taken on a lot of roles of patron of the Solar Council, I'm an ambassador of 100% Renewable Energy Campaign for the um, World Future Council, I'm an advisory on the um, Climate Accountability Institute out of the US, I've just taken on a role with the uh, um, Solar Heads of State, a whole lot of global uh, renewable energy focus, but I have to say the one thing that's concerned me and, and that is, we have fought for renewable energy and we have won. They can try and hold it back, but they cannot because the price is such that we have won. All they can do is try and slow it down. But I think where as a movement we've gone wrong, we have lost the connection with biodiversity. We have to bring back the terrestrial environment and species and protection of Earth systems into the climate debate. So if I can do that as part of the work I'm doing globally on um, energy and climate issues, that's certainly something uh, I'm really keen to see us link that back together and build a much stronger movement because if you disassociate energy from biodiversity, you get people talking about biomass being a wonderful thing and burning forests for energy being renewable. So that is an example of where we've become disassociated and we have to pull it all together. So there's plenty to do. But I guess the final point I'd make is that activism is a spectrum. It's Politics is not separate from activism. The Greens in politics are activists in politics as a spokesperson and a voice for the community activists outside. So you can come in and out of that. Um, and you can engage as an activist in whatever time and capacity you have at any particular stage in your life. So everybody needs to take it on in some way or another because ultimately a purposeful life is what makes you happy. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Thanks to Christine Milne and her publishers. This would be a good book for Christmas. Also, thanks to Jody and Roger and, of course, Vivian Langford. Uh, next week, at, f- join us again next week at 5pm. If you'd like to uh, download the podcast, that's available both at the BZE and the 3CR website. And salut, Barbette. Thanks for joining us once again. Good night. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil-fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website 
for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio.